And then you want to write articles about guys that don't do things right and downgrade them, the ones that do make plays. Are you kidding me? Where are we at in society today? Come after me! I'm a man! I'm 40! It is a beautiful, sunny day in Buffalo, New York on February 15th, 2011. One day after the lovers celebrated love. Donnie, how was your Valentine's Day, buddy? Uneventful. That's not true. I played a, a co-ed soccer game and scored two goals. <laughs> uh, and was that your only two goals of the night? Or did uh, you score also as uh, well later? I will remain uh, <laughs> before, before the game. Before the game. <laughs> Well, happy Valentine's Day to your Valentine, Michelle. Absolutely. And happy yours. Valentine's Day to my Valentine, Tammy. And of course, we want to wish happy Valentine's to the true Valentine's of Valentine's Day. And that's our mothers. Absolutely. June and Lois, two fabulous mothers. I saw power rankings. Uh, our, our guest, Luke Wynn, later, he's a big power rankings guy. And he actually had a mom's power ranking up for some reason today. My mom was first. On uh, his, yeah, but your wow. your mom was your mom was third, right behind his. Nice. So when my mom and then Mrs. Wynn and then uh, your mom. That's not bad because I mean, it, yeah. it, she's high up on the list, but it gives her something to work for still. Yeah. So we got a packed show today. The sportscasters, uh, Steve Bennett, Don Russ. Like I say, we got Luke Wynn. Uh, he's going to talk college basketball with us later on. He's from Sports Illustrated and from SportsIllustrated.com. Also, we have, and this is going to be next, Joe Poznanski uh, from SI.com, really one of the greatest sports writers in the history of American sports writing. And we have him on the Sportscasters, episode six. So I, um, I got to look and see if there's any podcasts that have, other than maybe the BS Report or the Corolla one, that had anyone as good as Joe Poznanski on episode six. Yeah, it's tough to beat. All right, so... Before we get into that, oh, another thing we're going to do is we're going to have some fun with the NBA All-Star Game. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this should be good. We're both really, really knowledgeable basketball fans, so we're going to pretend that the NBA decided to do what the NHL did with its All-Star Game and have a fantasy draft. So that's going to be coming after Joe Poznanski and before Luke Wynn. Before we can get any to any of that, we have to do three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. Alrighty, I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. Alrighty, my first of three things is an author, Sally Jenkins. Sally? Yeah, Yeah, for the Washington Post. Wrote an article. I mean, a lot of it was kind of uh, about the crazy costs uh, associated with the Super Bowl, like for drinks and parking and all that stuff, kind of about the price gouging. And that didn't even bother me. Like, that wasn't really all that eye-opening. I I understand it happens. The interesting thing that I read or took out of this article was, uh, did you see the planes do the flyover before the game? I did. You did. Uh, Do you remember what branch of the military they were from? The Air Force. Okay, that's not correct, but I'll tell you what. <laughs> I'll get back to that. 
The funny thing about that is, A, they had four Navy F-18s do a flyover before the game. The roof was closed. Was, yeah. So nobody in the stadium even saw it. And that was planned. They planned ahead of time to have the roof closed. Right. They knew the roof was going to be closed. Yep. That flyover cost the U.S. taxpayers $450,000. And the Navy kind of explains it away by saying it's good for recruiting. (laughs) So you thought it was the Air Force. Uh, Apparently the Navy was misinformed. That's that's staggering. <laughs> but you got, you know. It's tradition, What I would guess. the Super Bowl be without a flyover, right? right I mean, yeah, I don't know. When I look back to that glorious day where the Saints win the Super Bowl, I think of three things. Tracy Porter's interception, Drew Brees holding his baby up in the confetti, and the flyover. Right, right. The <laughs> How could you forget it? Right. All right, my first thing is also a Super Bowl joke. Did you hear about the 400 people who ended up not being able to get into the stadium? Yes. Everyone's heard that part of the story, and that's bad enough. Now, the NFL has done what they can do to try to rectify the situation, but here's what kind of disgusts me about it. I got this from Mike Florio. You know Florio? Yes. It's the uh, Pro Football Talk. I think it's owned by NBC.com. He wrote, as bad as the Super Bowl ticket fiasco ended up being for the NFL, it could have been much, much worse. Documents released by the city of Arlington on Friday indicate a concern by at least one Arlington official that the Cowboys were willing to roll the dice and take their chances that the seats not cleared by the local officials wouldn't, you know, collapse, end quote. (laughs) Are you serious? Wow. I mean, it's going to be things like that. It's going to make me really hard to side with the owners in this. (laughs) Right. The lockout battle. They were really, really considered strongly to just roll the dice and risk 400 people collapsing into the stadium in the middle of the Super Bowl. Now, I heard before the game that the people that were paying money to watch from a TV in the parking lot were going to be counted as in attendance. They were. Do you remember? I don't. I haven't seen the stats. Was it considered the biggest attended Super Bowl? They did not break the record, no. Would they have with those seats? I mean, was that his goal to be... I know that, that was a big thing he wanted to accomplish. and That's insane, though, putting people in danger. What, I mean, it's a bad enough story as it is. Imagine had they been let in and it collapsed. That would have been a nightmare for Jerry. That sounds like something that happens at a, in a third-world country during a soccer match. Right. It like doesn't happen in a $1 billion football stadium. Look at Jerry Jones. You build a $1 billion football stadium, and it's got a certain amount of seats. That's what you get when you host the Super Bowl. <laughs> that many seats. Right. My second thing. Uh, discussing the football lockout, one of the sticking points is the 18-game season. The players don't want it. I kind of agree with them. It, there's too many injuries as it is in a 16-game season. Tom Brady's agent suggested a compromise to the 18-game season. He said if there is going to be an 18-game season, he wants a few things to happen. One, the roster should be increased from 53 to 58 players. Okay, five more jobs. You know like that. Okay. Every player every week is eligible to play. Currently, there's only 45, 45. people eligible right. to play. I like that. But any player cannot appear in more than 16 games. Mm. So this would be great for talking points for podcasts, radio shows, fantasy football, anything like that. I mean, it would definitely be very interesting. Like, when do you sit your best quarterbacks? Obviously not right. in division games, anything like that. Unless maybe if you're the Bills, you sit them in against New England twice. Because right. you're gonna... Yeah, I mean, some people are going to miss two games just because they're, they're injured. Right. But if you look at the career that Brett Favre had... Yep. Uh, where he was never injured, and Peyton Manning, he never gets injured. And Tom Brady, he never gets injured. Drew Brees never gets injured. 
when are you going to sit those guys down? Huh? Right. I mean, it, it seems crazy, but I imagine a 16-game season seemed crazy however many years ago. So That's an interesting compromise. I, I don't know if I like it, but like you said, it'd be very, very good for the sportscasters. Yeah. be something to talk about every week for sure. All right, my number two thing. Hey, Peter Forsberg, thanks for nothing. <laughs> what the hell was that, buddy? You wasted your time coming from Sweden to the United States to skate around in Colorado for one or two weeks. Then say, you know what? Yeah, I feel good. Let's sign a $1 million contract. I'm going to help this Colorado team make the playoffs. Then you play two games, which from what I read were pretty decent. And then kaput, quit, goodbye. Yeah. Yeah, I heard he got 35 minutes. It was a 35-minute uh, stint, basically. I mean, I guess it's nice he gets to retire where he kind of made his name. But, yeah, what was that? That was ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. It was downright silly. How I, I didn't follow his stats in Sweden, but I mean, was he tearing it up there? Like, well, I have no idea, but it it doesn't even matter. Well, well <laughs> I mean, wasn't the point of skating for all this time? Wasn't that to decide if you were good enough to play? Yeah, I wonder how Colorado fans feel about it. Like, they had to be excited to hear him come back, even though he was obviously not. What well, he there's used a to bunch be, of but. there's a bunch of college uh, Colorado Avalanche fans on the Dave Damashek message board that I follow a little bit. And they said, you know, this is exactly why we didn't want him to come in the first place. He, they knew he was going to pull the shoot on him. You yeah, know? he's there, Brett Favre, to some degree. My last thing, and I know it's been, uh, it's been hashed out plenty in the past week, but I don't understand how Mario Lemieux can say what he says without feeling like a hypocrite. Their team leads the league in fighting majors, which I know they've said, well... A lot of them were due to the last game. But they lead the fight by fighting majors by six. And they have most of the season, I think. Right. Been either one or two. Or they have six more than Boston and St. Louis. So even if they had seven, then they're in second place in fighting majors. Right. They employ the most hated player in the league, probably, a Matt Cook. Probably, yeah. I mean, if it's not him, it's who? Avery, maybe. Avery, right. And Max Talbot doesn't have the greatest reputation either. What, I mean... What happened in that game was beyond hockey. It was kind of disgusting. Gillies and Martin, uh, those are ugly plays. Mm-hmm. I mean, Martin, that was a Bertuzzi play. Gillies was, is a punk. I mean, who, inju- or who barks at an injured rookie while he lays on the ice after you hurt him and who punches him after you elbow him in the head? I mean, it's disgusting plays. They probably should have been suspended longer. But Lemieux tends to do this stuff. He overreacts to one game. It was one game. You don't see that every night. I mean, it happened to some degree in Boston, Montreal, a little bit, but people didn't talk about it like this. He brings more attention to it, if anything, and it's just to threaten to take your your puck and go home is kind of childish. I and, think. you know, it's not the first time Mario Lemieux's done it. No, and I, I love Mario Lemieux, believe me. I love, to, I love to watch him play. I think he's no worse than the second-best player ever. I'm not going to debate that right now. But in 1996, he wrote through his agent, a letter to the commissioner basically complaining about clutching and grabbing and how players can't play and it's no fun and he threatened to take his ball and go home. Right. And he did just that. He took his ball and went home. I don't remember if it was this exact instance, but I remember reading uh, comments on him after a game. I think it was against Minnesota. They might have played like a home-at-home with Minnesota and his team lost like 3-1 to one or 3-2 to two or something like that and he said there's no room, clutching, grabbing. They went on to win the, their next game, like one nothing or something ridiculous. So to say like his team wasn't a part of it or was just guilt free, it's an exact. I don't know. He just you know what we're you know what we're getting to see now is Mario Lemieux. You know he's maybe got this label of kind of being a little bit of a baby, 
and the kid that he brought into his house right and kind of brought along Sidney Crosby sometimes labels a little bit of a baby it the parallel here too would be the Crosby was the hits to the head and I, I know nobody will do it but if you're gonna make the complaint about fighting and stupid play and stuff like that call out cook if you're Avery you got to call out cook when he he's the one that basically ended Savard's Oh yeah, I mean a great guy too, Savard. Savard's talking great about, about how he's can't he has, he's losing his short term memory now. I mean that's scary, and he sucks. Yeah, when they mic'd him up at that Oscar game, seems like a nice guy, good for the league, and now he's hurt. But you'll never see Lemieux call out his own player. I mean that's not surprising, but come on, you can't say this stuff publicly like your team doesn't do it too. It's disappointing. All right, number three. Uh, as we came into the show, we we played the famous Mike Gundy clip where he says declares quite loudly that he's a man <laughs> he's and that he's 40. And it turns out he's got a pretty good sense of humor, too. Uh, that's never going away. That sound clip's never going away. It's going to follow him forever. And I guess cutie pie Justin Bieber was on a radio show and was kind of explaining that his ringtone was the, was the rant that... Uh, Mike Gundy had the I'm a man, I'm a 40 ran. So Mike Gundy had a press conference yesterday, and this is how it went. But the first criteria um, is a smart football coach and understands the game and can relate well with the players. And uh, all three of these guys fit that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he, in response to finding out that Justin Bieber used his rant as a ringtone. He's quite cleverly set up his ringtone as a Justin Bieber song, which went off in the middle of a press conference that I thought was pretty funny. So hats off to Mike Gundy for having a good sense of humor. I like to see that. Yeah, and it, like it, his phone was right in his lap, like you said to me earlier before we started recording. So he probably had someone call him too. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like he set it up. He played it off. It's, it's pretty funny. All right. few other things. We just did three things. Now we got to take care of a little bit of business. Got to pay the bills, as they say. <laughs> just want to remind everybody, the Sportscasters can be found on Twitter three ways. You can follow the show, at sports underscore casters. And a cool thing about that is the show is now on a list, Donnie, that uh, a local radio host started that everyone follows during Sabres games, I guess. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we're on a list. At sports, cast, at sports underscore casters. You can also follow Don at Garbage Radio Don. And you can follow myself at Diversity23. The website for the show, which is getting more and more features every day. We got our about bios up there now. So if you want to find out about us, you can check them out. And the podcast is always posted there. And we're going to have some blogs. We have a message board. It's www.sports-casters.com. Uh, of course, you can find us on iTunes, or you can subscribe to the show for free. And the cool thing about that is if you type in the, and then you type in sports, and then you put the dash, and then you put the C, it's just us, Don. <laughs> yep. yep, so that's where you can find the sportscasters on iTunes. And we got, a, we got a like page. If people like us, they can click it on Facebook. Oh, right, right. Yeah, and the, the address for that is uh, facebook.com slash thesportscasters, which is just like our email, which is thesportscasters at gmail. So that's the business we're done with three things, and we will be right back with the great Joe Posnanski.
All right, our next guest is one of the most accomplished sports writers in the United States. Born in Cleveland, Ohio, he started his career as a sports columnist for the Cincinnati Post and the Augusta Chronicle. He has authored three books, including last year's The Machine, the story of the 1975 Cincinnati Reds. From 1996 to 2009, he was a sports columnist for the Kansas City Star. Two times he was named the best sports columnist in America by the Associated Press Sports Editors. Overall, he has been nominated for 21 APSE awards. His work has twice been included in the Best American Sports Writing Series. Currently, he lives in Kansas City, where he is a senior writer at Sports Illustrated, and he also blogs at joepesnansky.blogspot.com. That is also mirrored by SI.com. A warm sportcaster's welcome to one of the greats, Joe Pesnansky. How are you doing today? I am doing great. How are you? Good. I hope that that introduction was fitting of, uh, of your presence here, but we're really excited to have such an accomplished writer um, on the sportscasters. And we've had a lot, of, uh, a lot of different writers, but nobody as acclaimed as yourself. So I thought maybe we, can, we could start. I was looking at your blog the other night, and... Uh, I noticed you had about 30 pieces that you're kind of mulling over, and um, you're looking for suggestions which one you should turn into two longer pieces. So I was wondering maybe if we could talk a little bit about writing kind of as a process and what your process is, how, how your small ideas become bigger columns or um, become blogs or, you know, what, what's the process that you go through? How, how does someone like you write? Well, I don't know about how someone like me writes, because I don't really think uh, anybody else is quite as uh, insane as I am. But, <laughs> uh, you know, for, for me, it's just a it's kind of a survival of the fittest type uh, type process. You know, I, I, I have a lot of ideas and thoughts and, and, and silly things and, and uh, tweets and, you know, whatever else. And uh, what I try to do is, you know, I'll start writing some things and, and some just kind of, survive and then I get to the end of those and and uh, and those go up and uh, you know usually if an idea uh, really strikes me um, you know that's that's something that that I know I'll, I'll you know finish and then a lot of the other things that I do are just kind of you know little side projects that I kind of start on and and I sort of have come to the point uh, in my writing life I guess where if, if I'm not quite motivated enough to finish it then it probably wasn't necessarily good enough to, to be out there anyway. So, so it's sort of, you know, that's, I don't think other people, uh, are, are quite that, uh, quite that crazy. I mean, you know, that they go ahead and start a bunch of different stories and, and, and see, you know, which one they get to the end of, but, uh, it's sort of what's worked for me. So that's, uh, sort of what I stuck with. You mentioned Twitter. How has, how has Twitter changed you as a writer? If it has at all? I don't. I don't think it's it's really changed me that much. I mean, I think it has for for some others, uh, and and not you know in in good ways and bad. I mean, not not necessarily just in in, in one way or another. But uh, for me, it's. I think a lot of times what'll happen is uh, I'll tweet something and and then it'll hit me that whatever I'm tweeting, uh, I actually have uh, a larger thought involved, and so sometimes uh, Twitter thoughts will will turn into larger pieces or I'll get responses from people that'll sort of spark me into that. Uh, but in general, I, I kind of keep those two things separate. I mean, I use Twitter, obviously, to to uh, let people know when I've written something. Uh, but the other stuff is just kind of whatever 
comes to mind, you know, if I'm watching uh, Christina Aguilera just completely botch the, <laughs> the national anthem, you know, some some tweet will come to mind or whatever. But but usually that just comes from a different place. Those are usually just one quick thought, and I don't really have anything to add. It's just some some you know maybe snarky line or something kind of funny that strikes me, and 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 I can just put that up on Twitter. But it's usually you know, really separate. It comes from like a separate part of, of, of my writing than, uh, than, than all the rest of the work. That was interesting. You know, a few weeks ago, I was watching the NFC Championship game, and when Jay Cutler got hurt and went out of the game, my first thought was, oh, man, I got to get on Twitter. I got to see, you know, what people are saying. Is he coming back? Or, you know, I didn't expect kind of the storm that was waiting for me on Twitter. But what do you think about the way Twitter is kind of change journalism a little bit where people are kind of just in a rush to get stuff out there on Twitter and you know anyone could do you like Twitter I mean you know what I'm trying to trying to ask sure no yeah. absolutely well I, you know I I do like it I mean I think it's funny I think it's silly you know I wrote a piece for the back page of the magazine a couple of weeks ago uh, about athletes following athletes on Twitter yep. and, and you know some of the some of the absurd uh, some absurd things that they say, but I, but I think it's what's really cool about it is it does give you a sense of exactly what people are thinking about, uh, what people are talking about. I I really think it does work that way, and 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 so I think that's really cool. It's you know something that like during the Oscars, I'm a big fan of the Oscars, so I'll definitely you know try to pop on there and see what people are talking about and. You know, it's it's funny, and, and so I, I like it. I, I, to me, it's just a natural extension of things. I remember uh, a few years ago, I guess it was during the Tigers-Cardinals World Series, mm-hmm. uh, there was, on TV, there was like this, um, you know, a bit of controversy about Kenny Rogers and whether or not he was wearing tar, pine tar, yep. on his hand. And the thing that amazed me is, of course, I'm there at the game, so, you know, I, I kind of did it the old fashion way, you know, you wait for the game to end, then you ask Kenny Rogers about it, you ask other people about it. But meantime, a whole different kind of journalism kind of was going on and, and it was coming from from the average fans who were upset about this or whatever and they went out and they found old photos of Kenny Rogers and you know with, with pine tar in his hands and, and they broke down the, the, the T V so that you could see it frame by frame. And yeah. by the time I got up in the morning the story was something very, very different that it was, uh, you know, when I had gone to bed and, and finished writing the night before, and I thought, boy, this is, this is really changing. You know, it's just moving so much faster than it ever had before. And I think that's what Twitter is. I think Twitter is a natural, a natural extension of that. I think that what, what happened in the, in the Jay Cutler game is just so, I mean, I just think it's really compelling because the story was Jay Cutler getting hurt, but the story quickly turned into, you know, people's responses to that and how they felt about it and how it made you know other other players feel how it made other journalists feel how it made other fans feel and and uh you know i i just think that if you're if you enjoy writing and if you enjoy you know covering stuff then then you adapt to to the times and i think that's that's the times we live in do you think with things like the internet though and uh the instant uh, gratification of twitter and stuff do you think accountability is lost a little bit like some of the stuff said about cutler was pretty baseless no, no, no question about it. And I think accountability is is the big is the big uh, you know uh, that's the toughest part of this whole thing. I mean, it, and you know, people point to blogs or they point to Twitter, or they point to Facebook. But I think in general, accountability across the board uh, is different because there's just so much more out there. 
It's so much easier to get lost. It's so much more important for people, uh, a certain kind of, of, of journalism to, to be first. And being first doesn't always mean being right and, and all of those things. So, yeah, I, I, no question that accountability is, is the real challenge of our time. Uh, and, and I don't think it was like that. I mean, that's, that's one thing that has changed. But I also think that, you know, that there was sort of a weird lack of accountability in a very different way before. Because when you were a newspaper, you were kind of the only game in town. So the accountability for you was like, well, why didn't you report this story? Why didn't you write it? Well, we just didn't, and you have no other options. So that's a different kind of accountability issue. I, I just think that for now, um, we're definitely in a place where accountability is, uh, uh, is, is at risk all the time. And, and I think it's so important to try to maintain uh, some level of, of respect and, and accountability so that people know that when they read you, they're reading something they can trust. I don't know if you've seen Dan Levitard's piece today, but he kind of wrote from what seemed like a pretty frustrated place in regards to the rules and who should make the rules for new media and what the rules should be. And he kind of mentioned, like you do, you did, about how now there's accountability for reporters, and, and he's fine with that. But he feels like there's a lot of negativity on the other end, and a lot of anger. Do you get that from your Twitter? Do you feel like when you, anytime you post anything right away, you know, people are just trying to tell you what you did wrong? You know, I, I, for whatever reason, I've been kind of lucky on that front. I mean, that's not to say I haven't gotten that. I'm sure I have gotten it some. Um, but it seems like other people have gotten it more than I have. And, and I think, I, I don't know exactly why that is, and, and really try not to think too much about it, but... In general, uh, you know, the comments on my blogs and the, and the, and the Twitter I've received, um, it seems very reasonable to me. And, and you know, and, and I know that that's not the case in, in, in all places, and I think it's different, for instance, on my, the comments on, on my SI than, than they are for my personal blog or, or on my Twitter and so on. I, I do think that there's a lot of anger out there. I do think there's a lot of negativity out there. I've certainly gotten plenty of, of incredibly angry, nasty emails and so on and so forth through the years and calls and, and all that. Uh, people are passionate, and, and now they have much more of a place to, to, to be passionate. I mean, the, basically, if you want a voice in today's world, um, you, you can have a voice. You can have a blog. You can have a Twitter account. You can, you can you know, comment directly to people. Uh, you can comment directly on their blogs. There's, there, there, you know, in some ways, that's like... I think, you know, you asked him before about accountability and is it being lost, and, and it is in a lot of ways. But in a lot of ways, uh, if you're willing to put yourself out there, um, there's more accountability than ever. I mean, you know, if I write something that's wrong, you know, if I have a stat that's off or something, right. within minutes I'll get somebody responding saying, hey, that's wrong, and I can fix it. You know, I mean, that's that to me is great. I mean, mm -hmm. that's that's pure accountability. I can... I can make sure we get things right um, because people are watching. And so I think that part of accountability, that side of it, um, is, is, really, is really good. I don't, I don't disagree with Dan. I mean, I think he's right that, that there is more negativity and more anger out there uh, in a lot of ways. But, but I also think that the, some of the stuff that brings is actually, is actually pretty good for journalism. Mm-hmm. You wrote today a long piece about Albert Pujols and the Cardinals, and I think that this is, again, something that we're seeing uh, playing out in the new media, um, and you compared it a little bit to Derek Jeter and his contract with the Yankees. 
Uh, why don't you talk a little bit about what you wrote today about Pujols and kind of where do you think this is headed? I, I was surprised when I heard that the union, uh, La Russa had some problems with the union, and it just it seems like it's getting real heated and real complicated in St. Louis. Yeah, it does seem to be getting nastier and nastier, doesn't it? Uh, you know, I, it, it was something I've been, been thinking about writing for a while, is my thoughts on, on the, the Albert situation. And, you know, today was supposed to be the deadline, and I guess they moved it back for for uh, Stan Musial since he was uh, he got the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And, mm-hmm. and I think that's great. I'm glad they moved that back. But, um, you know, so it was something I've been thinking about for a while. And what strikes me about it, I think the thing that, that really struck me is that in a lot of ways, you know, with, with the Derek Jeter situation, everybody was looking at that and thinking, well, you know what, at the end of the day, he's going to end up signing with the Yankees yep. because that's what's the right thing to do. Nobody else wants him as much as the Yankees do and so on and so forth. And I think that some of those ways, it's very similar to Pujols. I mean, Pujols has been in St. Louis a long time. He's iconic there. Um, he's, he's a big, big part of sort of the Midwest and baseball. And so it, in some ways, it just feels like that's a perfect fit. And yet, I, it, it, it's nothing like the cheater situation because he's going to have options and he wants a lot of money. And I think there's a very good chance he's going to leave. So, so I wanted to write that and, and kind of get it a feel for for how different this thing was from, from the Derek Jeter situation. And then, you know, since I've written that piece, you know, the, it, uh, Tony La Russa came out and basically charged the union with, with trying to push Albert over the edge and, and some of those other things. And, and uh, I, I just think it's just so... We're, we're getting to the point where it's getting... Uh, there, there's not a real point of return for these guys. I mean, I think that the, the Cardinals feel like they've stretched to the edge. Uh, it's clearly not even close to good enough for for what they're going to need to do to sign Albert. And I think uh, that there's a lot of bad, bad uh, vibes going on here. And, and you know, it's I think they're going to end it, and I think the season's going to go on, and then I think Albert's going to, going to look around and see what's out there. Unless unless there's a, a sort of last-minute miracle, that, that's sure the way it looks to me. If we do get to the offseason and he does decide to leave, is it pretty much Yankees, Red Sox, Phillies, and no one else, or would there be other teams that could actually dream of signing a player like Albert Pujols? I, I, I you know, people have pointed to this. I look at the Cubs. I mean, I, I think that's the team. I, I don't think the Yankees uh, or Red Sox or Phillies make any sense. You know, I mean, they, they've all got big, big money guys they've already signed uh, as first baseman. Uh, you know, the Red Sox could to try to work him in in some sort of weird, you know, DH role, but that just doesn't make sense. Uh, the Phillies just gave Ryan Howard about $800 billion. Yep. So they're, they're <laughs> yeah. done, and, and the Yankees are paying to share, you know, that kind of money. So, so really, it, in a lot of ways, Albert's not in the best situation because the real big money guys, um, he doesn't fit. But I, I think the Cubs, the Angels, um, you know, a couple of teams, the Dodgers, teams, you know, depending on what ownership is like for them, um, these are teams that really might need to make a splash, and I think those are your players. I still think the Cardinals, at the end of the day, are going to have to come out there and put the best offer on the table. That's that's who they are. Um, I just think that, that he's so important to them that at the end of the day, I think the Cardinals um, are, are going are gonna to really go to the mat to make it happen, but I just don't think it's going to happen before he looks around and sees what other, what other offers are out there. Now, you said that a friend of yours, um, Jeff Gordon from the Post-Dispatch, not the race car driver, um, actually mentioned to you that he thought the Royals were a possibility. I mean, a team that I have a brother. He was born in 1986. He's 23 years old, and he doesn't know that the Kansas City Royals have ever been to the playoffs because 
it hasn't happened in his lifetime. Uh, do you think that they would ca- are capable of something like that, or is that just pie in the sky talk? Yeah, he he wrote that uh, last week, and and I basically uh, told him that he's insane. Uh, the Royals are are not in any way, shape, or form. I mean, you know, it's it's funny because the Royals, uh, I think they're on the right track in a lot of ways. I mean, their their minor league system is unanimously being hailed as the best in baseball, and they've got some big time prospects that are a year away, and and so things things are pretty exciting for them. But you know, you start thinking, well, the Royals can make a splash here. Albert Pujols is, is sort of, you know, at least been hinted that he wants $300 million for, for 10 years. Uh, David Glass paid $96 million for the entire Kansas City Royals. So <laughs> he's, they're just not even at the ballpark here. And, and, you know, and I don't know that they should be either. I mean, I think that, that you know, trying to make some big splash by bringing in a big-time free agent, it almost never works. So... I don't think that the Royals, that's part of their future. But I, but I thought that it was funny to wrote that because yeah. I just thought that nothing is less likely than that happening. Well, we got about, I don't know, two-thirds of the league or so have reported uh, pitchers and catchers and spring training's getting underway. What kind of intrigues you uh, besides Albert Pujols as we get into this season? What are you most interested to see how it plays out? Well, I'm, I'm excited. I mean, I, you know, I always am, but I'm, I'm actually getting ready to go to spring training. You know, the big stories that everybody's talking about, how good the Red Sox can be and how good that Phillies rotation can be. I mean, those are, those are great stories. I mean, that's really, really exciting. And I think, you know, what the Yankees are going to do with, with sort of a, a little bit of a wreck at the, you know, in pitching, uh, I think that's really fascinating too. So, so I think some of the big stories are are, are fascinating. But to me, it's, it's it's always about trying to find some other things and 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 seeing what else is out there. Who's going to be the player? You know, who are some of the young players that are going to emerge this year? And and uh, you know, who's going to have the big comeback year and those sorts of things. So I'm really excited. I you know, it's it's uh, always goes like this for me. You know, I go. Uh, to the Super Bowl, and, and you know, it's it, it's this huge, you know, gargantuan event, and then it ends, and then it's like, wow, baseball, <laughs> you know, that, that's yep. baseball time. So, so I think that's, uh, you know, b- between them and March Madness, it's uh, it should be a lot of fun the next couple of months. Now, I was going to ask you, as we get into spring training, is there, an, is there a team out there, kind of like Tampa Bay a few years ago comes to mind, or Detroit even a couple of years ago, that can kind of come from the bottom of the standings and uh, a kind of a lower payroll team and really make a, a run this season? Or are there teams that are just a little bit too far away, maybe need a couple more years? Or what, what do you think about that? Well, I, to me, what you do is you start by looking at teams that are in some of the weaker divisions. I mean, I, you know, just to me, Toronto is an interesting team. I think with the Yankees and the Red Sox and, and Tampa still, you know, trying to put something together, uh, that's a tough division to jump up in. Uh, so I think you look at some of the weaker divisions. I think the American League West is, is kind of wide open, even though the Rangers are coming off a World Series. You know, that's, you know they're, they're missing Cliff Lee now, and they signed Adrian Beltre, and that's just kind of a, a team that I don't know, you know, what to expect from, you know, but is is this year Oakland kind of you know begins to, to play well again? I is is kind of interesting to me. I think the National League Central to me is is my favorite division in baseball this year, uh, as far as you know, really interesting race. Because I think the Reds are absolutely for real. Uh, I think the Cardinals you know still have two great pitchers in Albert Pujols. So I mean that's that to me is is makes them that's a scary. contender. And then you, you look at what the Brewers have done. You know, bringing Zach Greinke in and Sean Markham and 
So I, I think that, that that National League Central race uh, is pretty interesting, and we could have a we could have a surprise winner there. I mean, that's you know that's that's a division that uh, you know Cincinnati kind of came somewhat out of nowhere last year to win it, and and I think that this year Milwaukee is really interesting, and and uh, so that'll be fun. That that should be a lot of fun. The sportscasters are here. We only got a few minutes left with the great Joe Poznanski, sportsillustrated.com. You can follow him on Twitter. It's at Joe Poznanski, just his Jay. name. Jay Poznanski. Jay, Jay, I'm sorry. A uh, couple, couple real quick things here. The Oscars. You mentioned you're a big fan of the Oscars. Uh, Social Network going to be the big winner this year, or is there another film you're looking at? And if you had a vote, well, who would yeah, you vote for? It, it, it looks it looks social network to me. I mean, you know, it's, it's I was actually just talking about this with somebody a, a little bit ago. Um, I, you know, I, I'm thinking that there's it seems somewhat open. I don't like that that they've added it, so they made it ten films. Ten films I, I don't yeah. like that. It's yeah, it's too many. Way too many movies. Yeah, way too many movies. Um, but you know, I, it seems to me like Colin Firth is is kind of a lock at, at actor. I mean, that seems like a fairly obvious one to me. Uh, I think that the uh, the young girl from True Grit has a real uh, uh, a real lock on on uh, you know uh, supporting actress, and then other than that, it's you know I haven't I haven't done my you know I, every year I get involved in some sort of major family pool with uh, <laughs> with all sorts of pride on uh, on the line, and so I haven't done my full fledged studying, but uh, but I think Social Network seems to me. Um, not only because it was a good movie, which it was, but but I think it was just kind of the movie. He, you know, with 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 him getting uh, Time Man of the Year and all yeah. that. It just seemed like it was the most socially relevant movie, I guess, of the year. Is that the best film you've seen in 2010, or is there another movie that you, you know, would would say was the best I, movie of 2010? I really, I really, really liked True Grit. I, I thought True Grit was really well done, and and I mean, I like the Coen Brothers anyway, but um, I, I really, really liked True Grit, and then. You know, my wife and I were literally just talking about this. Um, I thought my favorite, like, movie of the year that I saw was the, was the documentary um, Exit Through the uh, Gift Shop, the, uh, the, 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 uh, about uh, Banksy and, and uh, uh, street, you know, street art and yeah. all that sort of thing. It, was awesome. just, yeah. it wasn't the kind of movie that I thought was going to be any good or, or so, wasn't the kind of movie that I thought I was going to enjoy, but it uh, just kind of blew me away. So that was... That was really, really fun to see. Last thing, ugly lockout coming in the NFL. Are we going to have football next year? I think we will have football next year, but not until we have the ugly blackout. I mean, the ugly lockout. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's going to be nasty. Uh, you know, I think it's going to be. I think the courts are getting involved. I think it's going to. I think both sides ready to go to the mat. Um, and and I think that the owners kind of know that in a prolonged lockout. If, if they can keep the courts away, I think they know they're going to win. I think they know the players can't stick together for an extended uh, period of time. Uh, meanwhile, the players' union seems to know that as well, and which is why they'll probably uh, decertify and, and, and try to uh, take this thing to court. So, yeah, I think it's going to mad. But I also think at the end of the day, uh, the NFL supposedly last year made $9 billion Ooh. in profit. Um, you're, you're not throwing $9 billion away. I, I, I think somehow, someone along the way is going to figure that out. But, uh, but I do think it's going to be very, very nasty until we get there. 
All right, the sportscasters with the great Joe Poznanski. I'm going to get this right this time. You can follow him on Twitter, at Jay Poznanski. He's on SI. He was on the back page of SI, uh, the magazine, a couple weeks ago. Hope to see you in that spot again. That was great. Is that something you're going to do a little bit more here for the magazine? Um, yeah, in fact, I, I don't know if that's been officially announced yet, but, uh, yeah, I'm writing the back page now every other week. Me and, me and Phil Taylor are sharing, uh, sharing the back page and which is, uh, you know, obviously, it's incredible. uh, kind of, yeah, pretty yeah. much center stage of sports. So that's yeah, pretty cool. Congratulations. That's, that's great. Thank you. I'm glad I re- renewed that with that piece of news. Uh, <laughs> But <laughs> definitely tell all the people to renew. That yeah, would be, that would be great. And have you have you seen the magazine on the iPad yet? I mean, I I, I have my own. I I get it in the mail, and I've gotten it since because the Saints won the Super Bowl a couple of years ago. My dream came true. I needed the magazine and the football and all that, so I got another subscription. But since I've got the iPad, I can't help sometimes to buy it again because it just looks so stunning on the iPad. It, I, it's amazing. It is, it is, you know, and and I, I have my iPad obviously, and and uh, and and download it whenever I write something uh, somewhat extended in the in the, in the magazine because it gives me an excuse to uh, to do it. I, you know, the extras are great on it. Oh. The photos look amazing. I, you know, there's I know that there are plans in the works to try to expand that and make it, you know, because it's obviously very pricey to buy it uh, issue by issue. So I know right. that there are plans and efforts in the works to try to turn it in so that people who get subscriptions can can just tack that on for a nominal fee and and i know those plans are in the works i don't know how i know there's a lot of corporate involvement in that but i think it would be great i, I wish more and more people would see how cool it is because it really is cool on the yeah, ipad i love it all right well i don't want to keep you anymore we already went late we can't tell you how much we appreciate this it was really really an honor to speak to you i hope we uh hope we did an okay job thank you very much for being on Absolutely. Thanks a lot for having me. This is the NBA. All right, we're back. That was a thrill. Absolutely. I mean, the guy basically announced on our show that he's doing the back page column for Sports Illustrated. Yeah, can't beat that. Pretty killer. All right, we're going to switch gears a little bit, and we're going to play with the NBA. We haven't done much NBA on the show yet, but uh, it's All-Star Weekend, which is a big, big event. The other sports, the All-Star Game is maybe not as big of an event. The NBA All-Star Game is a big party. People want It's almost like Super Bowl week for the NBA. It kind of translates well, too. Yeah, so you what we're going to do is, you remember last week or two weeks ago now, when the NHL had their All-Star Game and they had a fantasy draft? Yep. Well, we're going to do the same thing here on the Sportscasters, and we're going to divide the All-Stars into two, two teams, but instead of East and West, we're going to have Team A and Team B, which me and Donnie are going to have a fantasy draft with. And then what we're going to do is we're going to add up all the points on Sunday night, and we're going to see which teams team won, and then that's going to be an extra point in our pick four standings. Now, the way I started it out is I made two captains, and the captains are both point guards. So the captain of Team A, a is Derek Rose. Derek Rose, and the captain of Team B is Chris Paul. Now I paired them each with a center, so that each team has a center. And Team A's center is Dwight Howard, and Team's oh Gasol. Oh Paul Gasol, and Team B's center is Dwight Howard. Okay, so now what we're going to do is we're going to flip a coin, and Donnie will call it in the air, 
And if it's heads, he can choose one of those sides or he can choose the first pick. You ready? Got it. All right. Heads. All right, heads. Heads. heads so you're going to take the first pick, I take I it. will take the first pick, and I will... Oh, uh, hold your goats. You're going to take the first oh, pick, okay. but i got to pick a team. Okay. Now, what team do I want? Well, I'm going to take Chris Paul's team. So I'm going to start with Chris Paul and Darren Howard. You're going to start with Derek Rose and Paul Gasol, and the first pick of the draft, which is... I will go with Mr. Decision, LeBron James. LeBron James. All right. Chris Paul, young point guard from Wake Forest, would like to choose Kobe Bryant as his first pick. What a backcourt, Donnie. My second pick, Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant, the big boy League's from leader, Texas. League's leader in point per game. Leader in points. You know what? I better get a score then as well, and I will take forward Carmelo Anthony. I will take with my next selection, Amari Stoudemire. And I will take the absolute slam dunk rookie of the year, <laughs> Blake Griffin. Now, that means we have starting fives. So, Donnie, your starting five is Derek Rose at, at guard, Kevin Durant, LeBron James, and Amari Stoudemire at forward. And then you have Derek Rose at guard and Paul Gasol at center. I have at center Dwight Howard. Uh, my back court is uh, Co- uh, Chris Paul and Kobe Bryant. And my forwards are Blake Griffin and Car- Carmelo Anthony, and you are up. With my next selection, I will go with LeBron's teammate, Dwayne Wade. Shrewd, shrewd. All right, I am, uh, I'm going to get a Celtic. Uh, I'm going to get one of the big Celtics off the board, and I'm going to take Paul Pierce. I will take Westbrook. And I am going to take another Celtic, and I'll go with Rajon Rondo. I will then go with Mark Cuban's boy, Dirk Nowitzki. What the hell? I'll take all three. I'm going to take Ray Allen. And I will, just to split them up, I'll take Kevin mm. Garnett. Yep. Good job, Kevin Garnett. Went off the board there a little bit, but I couldn't let you have all four. Uh, I'm going to stay in the Eastern Conference. I'm going to take, so you don't have all three, I'm going to take Chris Bosh. I will take Darren Williams. I'm going to pick Tim, Tim Duncan. Let's pause now and kind of set the stage up. You have LeBron James, Amari Stoudemire, Dwayne Wade, Derek Rose, Kevin Garnett, Kevin Durant, Paul Gasol, Dirk Nowitzki, Russell Westbrook, and Darren Williams. So that's your first 10. My first 10 are Dwight Howard, Ray Allen, Chris Bosh, Paul Pierce, Rajon Rondo, Carmelo Anthony, Kobe Bryant, Chris Paul, Tim Duncan, and Blake Griffin. And we're up to you for the 11th round. We have four players left. I will take from the Timberwolves, Kevin Love. I love that pick. Manu Ginobili, which leaves two players, Donnie. And why don't you explain what we got left here? We have all Atlanta Hawks all the time. Uh <laughs> <laughs> an angry Atlanta crowd as one of their players will be Mr. Irrelevant and the second one won't be that much better. But I will take Joe Johnson. Okay. Well, I am going to take Hollis Price. Uh, oh, not available. <laughs> not in the NBA, so I will pick uh, <laughs> Hofford, Mr. Irrelevant. Hollis Price. From Florida. 
being an Oklahoma boy? Yeah, House Price was an Oklahoma boy. He barely fit in his uniform, but he was a great kid. Blake Griffin teammate? Yeah, so what we're going to do is we're going to... We're going to pair these off. We'll post them on the website, and uh, we'll see who wins. I think uh, my team's locked, Donnie. You think so? Yeah. I can't argue that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we had a little bit of fun with the NBA, and when we come back, we will have a little fun with the NCAA as we welcome sports writer Luke Wynn from Sports Illustrated. Our next guest was born and raised in the state of Wisconsin. He is a graduate of the Metal School of Journalism at Northwestern University. Today, living in Brooklyn, he is one of the most unique and visual sports columnists in the world, writing for Sports Illustrated and SportsIllustrated.com. He started at SI as a college football editor, only working on hoops part-time before becoming a full-time college basketball columnist. His Luke Wynn at the Tourney blogs is one of the most fascinating reads during the tournament. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the uber-talented Luke Wynn. All right, Luke, thanks for joining us. How are you doing today, buddy? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. You know, you, we've been, uh, the last couple of weeks, we've been kind of trying to figure out what to do as sports fans now that football is over and could be over for a long, long time. And obviously, college hoops is one of the best things to do this time of year. Um, I think a lot of people start to, you know, say, oh, I got to fill out that bracket in a couple of months. It's time to really start paying attention to college hoops. So we got to get our listeners up to speed. You got to get me up to speed. Um, I was doing some research online last night. And uh, before we get into college hoops too much, I found a pretty fascinating story about the journey you took with your dad uh, to Utah that got you hooked on college basketball. Why don't you tell us, our listeners, a little bit about that story? Oh yeah, I'm glad you uh, found that. That was my my first NCAA tournament game that I saw ever was in 1994 in it's at Weber State in Utah. It was when my my parents both went to Wisconsin and we had season tickets growing up and ended up getting taken out. Wisconsin finally made the tournament. Went on a trip out west. I think I was I would have been 13. Got to see you, you, Wisconsin. I was actually more seeing Wisconsin Green Bay upset Jason Kidd's Cal team. That sort of was my introduction to, you know, like your classic great NCAA tournament upset. You know, the yeah. team, an unknown team beating, you know, a team with a couple NBA players on it. Um, and I, I free, freelanced in a very, I guess that would be a generous term for it, for, for a local <laughs> paper writing a review of it. And so that, that technically was my, my first NCAA tournament article would have been. March 94 at 13. Uh, then, you know, found myself much later, I guess, covering the 2005 NCAA tournament for SI. That would have been the next one after that. Well, going to Northwestern, I know you caught a pretty big break. And why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about how you got started at Sports Illustrated? I was in the Medill Journalism School at Northwestern. Um, I'd done a little bit of sports. Interned, I think, at the Wisconsin State Journal, writing for it to them, and they were they came to Northwestern to hire interns. And actually, Stuart Mandel, who is now you know a very well known college football writer in the country, he at the time was a college was a you know newsroom editor for college football, a Northwestern guy. He came, he actually did some of the interviews, and uh, so I interviewed with Stuart. Ended up 
getting an internship there, ended up actually taking his old job once he moved to being a writer, and then worked <laughs> my way up into the onto the writing staff. So it was kind of this. Uh, it, I, I'm indebted to him for helping me get in, you know, in the door, uh, definitely. And you know, now we're kind of co, you know, we're we're each the one of the featured writers on the Con College Sports website, which is pretty cool. Yeah, that's great. Uh, so it kind of seems like you're one of the lucky ones who really is, you know, just doing what you always wanted to do, you know, writing about college basketball, just like you did when you were 13 with your review of the Weber State Regional of the tournament. Yeah, I mean, I actually, you know, it was weird in college that we were, at the time, for the rest of college, I stopped writing sports and ended up doing, an on, doing kind of an online magazine with some friends who wanted to be like the salon.com of Northwestern instead. So I, for a little while, I thought I wasn't going to do sports. But no, I mean, for, I would say the majority of my life, it was what I wanted to do. And college basketball has always kind of been the sport to me that, you know, I, I've been the most passionate about, had the greatest kind of experiences, you know, growing up as a fan, uh, covering. Uh, I don't think that, you know, some people will ask sometimes about, you know, like, do you want to move up to the NBA? I mean, I would, I would never... I don't want to switch off college basketball. I don't even find the NBA very exciting. So college basketball to me is like this, you know, is a, is a great sport to cover. All right, well, why don't we dig into it, talk about the season. Uh, Florida was the last team in 06-07 to go back-to-back. How do you assess Duke's chances here at about the two-third mark uh, of going back-to-back? I would rank Duke right now as the third, my third most likely team to win the title after Ohio State and Texas. Um, unless Duke gets Kyrie Irving back late, which I don't, I don't know. I don't think you want to put your hopes on that. He might, I wouldn't be surprised if he tries to come back early in March. But I do think that this Duke team doesn't have. Um, there's something about there's something about uh, there's something that maybe they're missing in terms of the inside presence, offensive rebounding that you know people may have overlooked a little bit with what they had in Brian Zubek last year. Um, so it, they're not as good. I still think that they're in contention. I would put them in the Final Four. I just think Ohio State's a little better, and they would be the team that I would pick to be number one right now. I was looking at your power rankings last night, which I want to talk a little bit more about a little bit more in a second. But the top five is kind of really, you know, Kansas, who they lost last night, so maybe they'll slip. But it was like Kansas, Texas, Duke, all these schools I recognize, and then I get to six and. Uh, there's BYU, and then there's eight, and it's San Diego State, and those names kind of jump out at me. I mean, I know that they're in Mountain West, and I know that BYU's got this fancy shooter named Jimmer, but are these two teams really top six quality teams, or are they just kind of forcing you to put them there by the way they're playing so far? I think a little bit of it is the record, but I do think that BYU... I'm 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 a I'm higher on BYU than I am on San Diego State. I just think the BYU, you know, I, I think the numbers actually do match up. It's not just, you know, Jimmer for that is is an amazing player and, and probably should be the national player of the year. But he does have, you know, he has a lot of quality offensive options around him. Jackson Emery is a good shooter in his own right. Brandon Davies and Noah Hartsock are excellent forwards. And I think that they're Jimmer doesn't really play a lot of defense, but his teammates do pretty well. And I do think that they are deserving top ten team. They've kind of had that. They maybe have a stigma about them because they haven't succeeded in the NCAA tournament. And I don't know if it's uh, you know if it's a matter of the luck thing, but I, but I do think it's a team that's deserving to be in the top ten. And, and I would put in the mix as like a you know elite eight team with a dark horse final four team. So San Diego State, I have a little more concerns about. I think they have. Um, 
I don't see them getting beyond. I, I wouldn't be. I don't see them getting beyond the Sweet Sixteen. But I kind of. You kind of have to put them in the top ten just based on their resume right now. Right, they're kind of forcing their way in. I, I, I don't think I've ever seen San Diego State in the top 25 in the 25 years that I've been watching college basketball. Where, how, do, how have they built this? Is there a coach that is going to be the hot commodity with the big like BCS, quote-unquote, college basketball schools next year? Or did they hit it with a big player? Or what, well, where did they come Steve, from? Steve, Fish, Steve Fisher, who was you know, the uh, you know, Michigan, Michigan right? coach yeah. back in the day, is, is the guy who's responsible. You know, he kind of because of what happened, Michigan had to kind of leave the, you know, the college basketball mainstream for a little while and resurface. And, you know, I mean, he's, he's a, he's a guy who, you know, proved he was capable of building a, you know, a, a prominent team in a major conference and he's kind of resurfaced at San Diego State. He's not able to, wasn't able to kind of bring in, recruit the same, you know, obvious elite players that he did at Michigan. But what he's done is kind of, he, he has a, a core of some veterans in, you know, in guys like, uh, Malcolm Thomas and uh, and uh, Billy White, DJ Gay, but he he found this this kid uh, Kawhi Leonard, who's sophomore, who's kind of was one of those classic sleeper prospects. who was a little bit overlooked. I mean, he he was still I think he was you know top one hundred guy, but he uh, he was a little bit overlooked. And San Diego State got him. Uh, he you know he wanted to play there, and he blossomed into you know possible lottery pick. And it was, it, it's kind of one of the things you have to do. You know, you've seen it. You see the BYU giving for debt. You know, he was an overlooked recruit out of New York, and you see the San Diego State getting Leonard. You need to find, you know, just I think you need to find one kind of centerpiece player that's a little bit overlooked by the major conference schools and, and build around him. And so they both done that. I, was, I mean, if you haven't seen it, Leonard yet, you, he's kind of a uh, like a high forward who can score. He score in the post, score in the mid range. You know, he he can pull bigger guys off the perimeter and drive on them. He can shoot the three. He's a you know, he's just one of those guys who. Scouts are really intrigued by because of his, you know his possibility to play all you know anywhere on the floor. Now I know you're in Brooklyn, and uh, what you're saying about Steve Fisher kind of reminds me of Steve Lavin and what he's doing at St. John's, who's building a really good resume with wins over Duke and UConn, Georgetown, Notre Dame. Um, what do you think of St. John's kind of reestablishing themselves maybe as a power in the mecca of college basketball in New York? I mean, I didn't think it could be done. Really, I mean, he, they're they're doing well right now. I mean, they, they need they still need a few more wins to kind of solidify themselves in the NCAA tournament. Um, but really, though, I think that you know this year it wasn't expected that they were going to do a ton this year. And I think he's already exceeded expectations. And then the recruiting classes he has, you know, stacked up, especially for next season, are, are really impressive. And, and it wasn't that was something that Norm Roberts, his predecessor, really wasn't able to do at St. John's. Just be, um, was kind of tap into, you know, not only the local talent market, but a national talent market and kind of, uh, you know, market that, you know, market that chance to play at the Garden, play in the Big East, be, you know, be a kind of like team in a major media market. And he didn't, he didn't capitalize on it. And Lavin is kind of a, you know, he's a, he was a TV guy for a while. He's kind of a showman. He's a, you know, he's a personality. I think he, he was he's able slick. to sell kids. Uh, yeah, I mean, he was yeah. able to sell kids on it. And so St. John's, I think, you know, it's a decent team this year. I think it's going to take, um, maybe another year to build. You know, I think they'll have a down year next season, and then they'll be really strong like two years out uh, with with the classes that they have built up. What has happened to Michigan State and Syracuse uh, this year? I mean, Michigan State was your your preseason, I think, number two. Syracuse spent time at number one this year, and both of those teams just seem to have just fallen off. Can't win a game. I, I'm way more worried about 
Michigan State than I am about Syracuse. I think I think Syracuse has turned around a little bit. You know, maybe uh, they're not they're not a team that I know that you know they jumped into the top ten when they had you know undefeated. You know, it's, they, coming to that Pittsburgh game, they were seventeen you know, and zero. I, uh, think, right? I think. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and that was they're probably overrated at that point. But I do think that they're they've righted the ship a little bit, and they're they're still a team that you know needs to be considered in the top twenty. Whereas Michigan State has, I mean. Usually that team has built up a little bit of, uh, you know, you're willing to give them the benefit of the doubt heading in the NCAA tournament just because of their past success. But this year, I mean, they have some clear, some clear major personnel issues. But you know, losing, losing Corey Lucius, having Chris Allen leave before the season, uh, you know, they don't, they haven't gelled at all. It's just a team that seems to have imploded. So I, I don't have much faith in them for the tournament. The SEC is a powerhouse in college football, but not so much on the basketball side. How bad is the SEC this year, and how do you rank? And after that, how do you kind of rank the conferences at this point? I mean, the SEC really doesn't have a dominant team. I think that we were hoping, you know, maybe they hoped that Tennessee would at the start of the year, but it's hard for Tennessee to kind of overcome all of the allegations. I don't know the issues that Bruce Pearl has had. I mean, you don't lose your coach for eight or nine games in the middle of the season and, and not have it affect you in, you know, in, in a tangible way. And so I think that you've seen that team just, they're a little worn down. They don't, they're, you know, they're still capable. They have some big wins, you know, big wins on the road. You don't want to rank them off entirely, but so that has hurt. I mean, that, that may have ruined their season. Uh, Florida's kind of surging a little bit here lately, but I don't know if I have the faith in their guards to be dominant. Uh, Kentucky to me really is a team that, even though they have a one road game, has so much talent that, I do think that they still have a chance to make a decent NCAA tournament run because they're, you know, the team that still has like an upside, it still has upside, still has like a month that I think that they can make significant progress in. Um, so I wouldn't, but it has been a disappointing league as a whole. I mean, Mississippi State has been one of the more embarrassing teams the whole year. I mean, just with, you know, Renato Sydney's saga fighting in the stands in the Hawaii tournament, uh, you know, players leaving. It's, it, that, that program has been somewhat, probably the biggest embarrassment in college basketball yeah. this year. But, and then if you want to rank the leagues, I am, I mean, I, st- I think the Big East, you know, obviously the deepest league. Deep, I mean, yeah. can't, it's, hard, it's, hard, it's hard not to rank. If, a team, if the league is probably going to get 10 teams in the NCAA tournament, which seems likely, it's hard not to rank them number one. I do think that the Big Ten, just in, with its three teams at the top, Ohio State, Purdue, and Wisconsin, are all really strong, and I would put them, I would put them second. Um, after that, it's kind of, <laughs> after that, it's kind of a mess. I mean, actually, never mind. The Big Twelve, I would put second. Big Ten, third. Um, ACC, fourth. I guess SEC and Pac-10 are close to each other on another level. Right. I mean, Mountain West is two teams. Is really two teams deep. Mountain West is probably ahead of the SEC and the Pac-10. Uh, you know, it, it gets ugly after the first after the first three, I guess. Butler was an inch or so away from the championship last year, but they're sitting in fourth place in the Horizon, eighteen and nine. Um, are they a tournament team, or do they need to pretty much win the auto bid? And how many teams do you think Horizon can get? Because there is, you know, three or four teams ahead of Cleveland and Milwaukee, and uh, a couple other teams ahead of Butler. Is this a league that's going to be more than a one bid league, or? No, I don't. I think that it's probably. I wouldn't give it more than one bid this year. I don't think the Butler's going to need to. I think win the tournament. They just have too many bad losses within the league. Uh, they didn't. They kind of lost their defensive intensity from last year, which is kind of 
surprised me a little bit because they're they were such a disciplined team that I, I didn't think that they would they, you know that would happen to them, but it really has. I mean, they've, they've kind of regressed a lot defensively, and they they have too many bad losses on their resume in my mind to to even be you know possibly considered for an at large. So they're gonna they're gonna need to win the the, the league tournament. They do have. I mean, that league though has, does have. I don't know if you've seen this guy Norris Cole at Cleveland State though. I mean, if Cleveland State can get back in the tournament, this guy has a chance to be one of those like you know tournament icons yeah, yeah. that blows up. He, yeah, he's I mean, he's got he wears like this classic flat top fade, you know, <laughs> haircut from the early '90s. He just had a game where he had you know 41 points, 20 rebounds, nine assists. Uh, you know, last weekend, like he, this guy is a legit star who not a lot of people know about and could turn into, you know, it could turn into one of those, you know, tournament darlings, I think. He has a big chance to do that. Now, when I was researching for this interview, one thing that really, really stood out was how visual and how dynamic your power ranking column is. I mean, I read power rankings all the time. We're drawn to that. That's probably why people write them. You know, I read them for football. I read them on ESPN, SI. I like power rankings. I've never seen one so visual with so many charts and graphs, and it's incredible. I mean, it's fascinating to read. When you got that assignment, what made you go that direction as opposed to Duke's number one, here's three reasons why, you know, so-and-so's number two, here's why? Well, I think in part where the power rankings is, is I realized that that was the venue at which, or that was the article that would have the most eyeballs on it. I mean, it was clear. Like, we can see the statistics on the website. I mean, I don't look... I don't look now that much, but I, when I was first writing them, I would look, and you, you know, you probably get, I would say the readership is probably 10 to 20 times larger on a, a power rankings than it is a normal column. So I figured, well, that would be the thing that would be best, the best idea to put the most time into, you know? Right. And so it kind of, and then, and then I kind of felt like expanding on them in some way that would give um, value to, I feel like it is important to give, with, with the rise of like blogs, you know, that cover teams in extreme depth, that it was important to try to figure out a way to give fans who, even though they already obsess over a team, like something new, something that might still be some insight into them, like even if they were following their team through like an intense team blog or message boards every day. And so I just kind of wanted to figure out something that people weren't doing. Uh, and so I think that the visual stuff, you know, trying to take advanced stats and statistics and presenting them in ways that maybe people hadn't thought about before is kind of something that isn't out there. So it was really just kind of, in my mind, I wanted to I wanted to figure out something that people weren't doing. And I also kind of had a background in in web design before I started writing. And so it's easy. I make all my own stuff. I don't I don't wow. pass it off on anyone else. So I I do that too. So it's kind of I take it upon myself to just kind of make these things as I'm writing because I find them you know. So I, I was sort of self-taught in Photoshop and coding and stuff like that and have been allowed, given the freedom by SI to just make things and send them in, so, which is nice. I mean, I thank my editors for being willing to do that or willing to let me do it. It's the Sportscasters. We're talking with Luke Wynn of SportsIllustrated.com, Sports Illustrated Magazine. Only got a few minutes left with them, but you uh, definitely want to make sure if you don't read anything that Luke does, make sure you check out that Power Rankings column that we were just talking about because... It is absolutely, it's just visually, it's just so stunning, and it just draws you right in. I think I spent like two hours reading like the last four of them last night, just because I was just learning so much with all the different stats and whatnot. And also, you can follow Luke on Twitter, at Luke Wynn, uh, W-I-N-N. So a couple more questions here before I let you go, Luke. Um, I'm a big Oklahoma fan. 
Uh, the, I'm going to watch the NBA Slam Dunk Contest because I, I love Blake Griffin and I miss Blake Griffin. And uh, <laughs> I, I miss, I miss, I don't know, I miss being competitive. Um, what, how much longer does Jeff Capel have? Why is this team so bad? Um, is there any future? Is there any hope? I would, I would say there's hope. I mean, I haven't been, you know, I, I sort of admit to when you cover basketball on a national basis, if a team sort of falls off of the radar, like I stop, I sometimes stop paying attention to them. Well, that <laughs> wasn't hard to do with but Oklahoma. Right? You probably stopped paying attention to them September 3rd. Yeah, so I haven't. <laughs> I mean, aside from the Oklahoma games where they've crossed paths with Kansas or Texas, Texas I haven't right. been watching them as much. But I do think that, you know, I mean, it is a cyclical thing. You know, you had, he brought in, you know, you had Blake, he had a couple guys who he thought would pan out, you know, and Keith Dallin and Nathan Griffin, and they left. And I think that, you know, he'll be given a chance to build another, you know, strong class of recruits. He's proven that he can recruit. Maybe he, maybe I think he can learn his lesson in terms of being more selective about what kind of guys he brings in, you know, in the future right. rather than yeah. just going for any. Because, I mean, the, the Gallon thing and the Nathan Griffin thing really seemed to blow. I mean, it just, he didn't. He had no, those guys left no impact on the university, you know. They were in and out without having quality season without having anything. And so I think that he may refocus his recruiting. Because he's proven, I, I think he is a guy that can connect with kids. I mean, I remember, you know, just hearing from, you know, like Willie Warren, who was another problem guy, but he just, just the way he Bust. recruits, he seems to be able to connect with young kids. Right. Uh, and so I wouldn't write him off as a guy who couldn't build another team there. Um, and, and I think he built enough capital by, you know, I mean, with the Blake team, was a, it was a number two seed in the NCAA tournament, you know, was a contender. I don't think you can get, you would get, on the hot seat within two years of that, you know, within two years of that, I think he'll get another chance. So I would say I would have faith in him at least bringing in one more decent recruiting class before he got into serious, you know, jeopardy with his job there. So if the committee had to meet tomorrow, a couple questions. How many teams would the Big East get? Would they get 11? Who would the four number one seeds be? And what would the public need to know about how the tournament is different with the expansion and the changes that they made last season? I think that for the first answer, I think that a Big Ten, Big East is a, is a ten bid league. I don't think that they'll get in. I think that a, the line will probably be drawn in Marquette. Um, I think that's probably the last team in. It's nine or ten. I don't think eleven is possible, just because the teams are going to beat each other up. Uh, too much at the end to, to have resumes that are, you know, reasonable. But, uh, and then I would say the other question was the number one seed. Yeah, so four number one seeds. Yeah, the number one seeds. I do, th- I do think that, you know, Ohio State obviously is, is probably your number one, number one overall seed. I think Kansas and Texas are still there and Pittsburgh. I think the number ones are, are, are clear right now. You know, you never know. I mean, Duke kind of was gifted into a number one seed last year in a really right. nice region. So And that happens quite a bit. I mean, if someone does slip up with another bit, I mean, Duke's right there. I think that the UF five teams can be in for four spots. I really don't think that there are other, you know, I mean, BYU maybe if they win out, you know, if they won out in the Mountain West, but it'd be hard to justify giving BYU a one over a team like, you know, even Pitt or Duke or, you know, or Texas. Uh, so those are the four. And then in terms of the differences in the tournament, I mean, you know, you've added three large bids. That's important. You know, you're going to have this kind of first four thing in Dayton, which is, it's interesting. I don't know. I mean, I really don't know what to expect, like whether people are going to think that that's a good television or not. I do think that there are some some marketable changes on with the way the tournament's going to be televised this year, which is, you true know, TV, you can get yeah. every, every game with cable. I mean, True right. TV is weird, but the fact that you have every game on cable this year is, is, is great. I it's mean, awesome, so yeah. The viewings and 
the way they're, they're scheduling the games is they're staggering start times this year. So you're not going to have, you know, there's instances where four, three or four games are ending at once. Uh, you know, they're staggering out the end. So I think you'll be able to just see, uh, for a hardcore fan, there's just going to be an opportunity to, from your home, you know, see so much more basketball and, and kind of always be on the game you want to be on rather than complaining. Because I, I feel like complaining about not being able to see parts of NCAA tournament games has always been a big part of the NCAA tournament, and now that's out. So I think that the viewing experience, you know, for me, I'm on the road, but I just think for people in general, the viewing experience is going to be better, Other than, aside from all the jokes about games being on True TV, which is admittedly <laughs> weird, but it's better than not having them on at all. So. What's more True TV than the NCAA tournament, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, well, uh, it's, 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 I'll, I'll take that over notch. Uh, one more thing that I think everyone needs to know about when it comes to Luke Wynn is your Luke Wynn at the tourney blog around tournament time. That's another thing I spent a couple hours just looking at and reading and enjoying last night. Why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about what you do when it comes to tournament time and how you cover the tournament? Well, I, I mean, it's uh, I think we started it, I'm trying to think it was four or five years ago, when, I don't know if like blogging by an actual mainstream reporter was 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 normal so it was the first i think it was the first tournament blog by a national writer at the time i just kind of felt like the tournament lent itself to the heavy coverage and it's not um it's not the same as maybe someone watching on television I, i'm still on the road and out you know doing posts from arenas so it's kind of a combination of game posts photography statistical analysis um you know with the hope to be putting up three or four things a day and so and then providing some kind of overarching take for SA.com on the front. So that's what that's the deal is. It's it's a you know it's it's a it's a grind. It's thirty plus days. It's nonstop posting, but it's fun. So that's a, that's my that's my huge task coming up starting first week in March. Okay, Luke Wynn, Sports Illustrated, SportsIllustrated.com, and the Sports Sportscasters. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, like I said, you can find Luke. On SI.com. You can follow him on Twitter at LukeWin.com. Anything else you want to plug or promote? What are you working on uh, right now? Is there any big features for the magazine coming that we can look forward to or anything online? I have, I have, a, I have a magazine story, but I'm, I, I guess I have to keep a secret. So that, that's what I'm working on right now. But the power rankings are coming out Thursday, so that's the thing. That's, that's what everyone should, should, be, should, uh, should check out on Thursday afternoon is the next edition of the power rankings. So next edition of the power that, rankings, uh, and then look for you in the magazine in the next couple of weeks? Yes. Okay, Luke Wynn, thank you. Thank you so much. I can't thank you enough for coming on the Sportscasters. It's been a great, great time. Last thing, who cuts down the nets in Houston? I'm going to go with Ohio State. Ohio State. I'm not. I I covered their loss at Wisconsin this Saturday, but I'm undaunted by that. I still think that that's the uh, most solid team all the way through. They have the feel feel to me of a title team, just having seen them up close a few times. So Ohio State pretty confidently right now. Wait a minute. Now, you're a Wisconsin guy. You weren't the spitter, were you? I was not spitter. Okay. I didn't witness any spitting. You didn't I don't see know. any spitting. I'm, uh, no. I'm a little. I'm not. I don't know. I didn't see any spitting. Uh, but you know, I don't think. I hope he wouldn't make it up. So that's all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hope he wouldn't have made it up. But I didn't see any spitting, and I was there before uh, and after. All right, Luke. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. All right.
All right, the Sportscasters, episode number six, one segment left. You know, next week, Donnie, did I tell you? Next week, we have on the show Zach Rosenfield from AccuScore.com. Do you remember him from the old Damashek On Demand podcast? I do, absolutely. AccuScore Zach. Yep, so it's going to be a couple OU boys rapping next week, uh, me and uh, AccuScore Zach. And also, we have uh, Lee Jenkins from Sports Illustrated. He's an NBA writer. At SI.com, who, and that Sports Illustrated has been really good to us. He's going to come on and set us straight and set up the uh, second second half of the NBA. The The episode after that, which will be episode 8, uh, is going to be a big NHL trade deadline show. It's going to be the day after the trade deadline. So we're going to get some hockey guys on and, and talk about the trade deadline. That should be exciting for Sabres fans, too. Yep. So a couple more things before we get to pick four. Don't forget you can find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters. Our website is www.sports-casters.com. You can find us on iTunes by searching for The Sportscasters. You can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash thesportscasters. And you can email us at thesportscasters at gmail.com. If you're reading the book, don't forget to read up. We will be having uh, the author of the book, uh, John Wertheim from Sports Illustrated, joining us on the March 8th show. So you got a couple more weeks to finish the book. All right, pick four, Donnie. Yes. Why don't I recap last week first? Yeah, please do. <laughs> <laughs> Donnie is all pumped up to recap last week because he went 4-0. and oh. He won with the Montreal Canadiens, beating the Toronto Maple Leafs on Hockey Day in Canada, 3 to nothing. He won the game of the week, Duke beating North Carolina 79-73. to 73. The Cleveland Cavaliers did end their dreadful losing streak, as he boldly predicted, by beating the Clippers 126-119. to 119. And he won with his choice, Pitt 57, Villanova 54. I didn't do much worse. I went 3-1. and one. I won with the Duke game. I won going against Oklahoma for the second straight week, <laughs> uh, picking Texas, who won 68-52. Uh, I won with my Hockey Day in Canada game as Vancouver beat Calgary 4-2. to And I lost. Jimmer did not go over 40 points against Utah. He scored 23. So, this week. Game of the week. Uh, we discussed it earlier. The NBA All-Star game. And judging by our picks, I think the West went a lot quicker than the East. So, I went with the West over the East. Okay, we're going to be the same here, and the reason I went with the West is because Blake Griffin plays for them. <laughs> so I will take the West. My host choice, keeping it a little bit local, was uh, the Sabres play the St. Louis Blues on Friday in Buffalo. It'll be the third game of four nights. Uh, the Sabres just seem like they're better on the road this year. It'll be Miller's second game after getting a rest, so I kind of feel like he's going to be fired up for the first one. I don't like that game for the Sabres. I'm going to pick St. Louis. Sad to say. It's kind of a reverse jinx thing, though. But Interesting. My host, host choice pick also deals with the Sabres, but I went with the Hockey Day in America game. Uh, it's, it's a 12 o'clock start in the HSBC Arena. I don't know if I'm going to be able to get out of bed and get to the arena in time on a Sunday for a 12 o'clock game. <laughs> no kidding. That's torture, but I'm going to pick the Sabres over the Capitals. Uh, it's, like I said, 12 p.m. on NBC. Uh, not a ton of positive logic here. I just like the way they've been playing. I love the way Drew Stafford and Thomas Vanek are playing. Um, I saw a stat the other day, and it's something like in the last 21 games, Stafford has however many goals he has. Yeah, it's 
quite a few. We put him at uh, over a full season. We'll put him over fifty, I think. And Ovechkin has less goals than him from the start of the season. Yeah, right? Stafford has the most hat tricks in the league now too. Yeah. So I'm going to just pick the Sabers over the Capitals. My worldwide leader in going with my usual trend of taking a college that had to do with uh, a guest. The guest. I didn't do that. <laughs> I sort of it, because of uh, Joe Posnanski's connection to Cincinnati. I took Cincinnati over Louisville Wednesday at 7 p.m. on ESPN. Okay. I was going to pick over Oklahoma against Oklahoma again. again. I was really close. They have a national televised game against Nebraska. But I don't know anything about if Nebraska's good or not, so I let it go. Uh, I'm going to take Texas, who's an absolute powerhouse, uh, the number two team in the country, to defeat Oklahoma State on ESPN 2, 9 o'clock Wednesday. My bold prediction might might be similar to yours. I don't know what yours is, but I kind of took it because of your OU love for Blake Griffin. My bold prediction is that he will win the dunk contest and the MVP of the All-Star game. That's your bold prediction. That's my bold prediction. Donnie, I'm going to read to you what my bold prediction is as I wrote it last night (laughs) in my living room. Okay. Blake Griffin will win the slam dunk competition and be named MVP of his first All-Star game. Interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Well... We haven't been best friends since birth for nothing, I guess. That's right. So that's going to happen. All right. Great show. This is one of my favorites. I loved it. I can't wait to do all the stuff we got to do so you guys can hear it. So let's end it right there. Donnie, you cue the hip, and we will see you next week with Zach Rosenfield and Lee Jenkins. All right.